thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life. The universe. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the show that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science and technology. I'm Katie Haler. And I'm Chris Smith. This week, put on your hard hat and your steel-capped boots. We're journeying to the centre of the Earth, from the soil at the surface to the magnetic molten iron at the core. We're delving into what is going on inside our planet. Plus, in the news, how llamas help us to combat COVID-19, archaeology on a quad bike, and Einstein is proved right again in a test of extreme gravity. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Under the latest relaxation of the coronavirus restrictions, Boris Johnson announced last Wednesday, on the 10th of June, that for people in England, if you've been living alone during the lockdown, you can now spend the night at another property. Good news for some grandparents and couples who've been split up for weeks on end. Also, from Monday, the 15th of June, you can nip out to do some non-essential shopping, or you can go on a trip to the zoo. Schools, though, are still pretty restricted and you still need to watch your distance with strangers, especially inside places like shops and on public transport. With Chris Whitty, the chief medical officer, warning that we're still only in the middle of the pandemic and that things might get worse this coming winter, we are not out of the woods yet, though. So while we wait for a vaccine for COVID-19, it's possible that members of the camel family could be coming to our rescue with a treatment. Scientists in America have isolated a class of antibodies from a llama vaccinated with the coronavirus. These antibodies are called nanobodies. They're like a miniature version of one of our own human antibodies and they work the same way. But they may even, on account of their small size be able to access and neutralise parts of the virus that chunkier antibodies can't get to. Daniel Rapp is at the University of Texas at Austin. We started this work in 2016 when there was no active coronavirus outbreak and we were trying to understand the mechanisms that allowed the coronaviruses to enter into host cells and infect us. To do that, we vaccinated a llama named Winter with proteins from coronaviruses that had emerged into the human population previously. Now, what were you hoping to learn by doing this, and why did you pick on Winter the Llama? When we started, there were no uh, approved vaccines or therapeutics for any coronaviruses, and in fact, that's still the case. Uh, So we were hoping that we were able to elicit antibodies from this llama that bound to portions of the coronavirus that are critical for its function and prevent it from entering into host cells. And the reason why we picked a llama is because llamas are known to produce a specialized class of antibodies that humans aren't capable of producing. Those antibodies are about half the size of the antibodies that you and I would produce. And because of that smaller size, they're able to bind to small crevices and pockets that otherwise wouldn't be accessible to larger antibodies. Why do llamas do this then? Good question. We think it's sort of just an evolutionary quirk that arose, and because it was beneficial for the llamas to be able to fight off infections, it stuck around. Sharks do a similar thing, but we think they're probably two distinct evolutionary events that just spontaneously arose. And what about animals that look a bit like llamas? Because alpacas look like mini llamas. Do they do that as well? They do, yes. It's a, it's a group called camelids, which includes llamas, camels, alpacas, and a couple other organisms. And your idea then was we make them make these mini antibodies that might be endowed with the ability to reach parts of the virus that other antibodies might not, a bit like the sort of antibody equivalent of Heineken beer. And and what, then you could use those therapeutically or, or use them to understand the virus better? What was your motivation? 
Yeah, we were trying to sort of use them to understand the virus better. And if they were capable of neutralizing the virus, then they would be potential therapeutic candidates. We found one mini antibody, or it's sometimes called a nanobody, that was capable of very potently neutralizing a virus that caused the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome outbreak in 2012, and one that was capable of neutralizing the virus that caused severe acute respiratory syndrome coronavirus in 2002. How do you go then from one of these nanobodies, mini antibodies in a llama, to something that will help a patient who's infected with coronavirus of the COVID-19 type today? Fortunately, the antibodies that we isolated from the llama were actually so potent that we didn't have to change them much at all. Theoretically, we could take those antibodies, administer them directly to a patient, and they would be able to fight off COVID-19 more easily with the help of that treatment. Where would you get the antibodies from, though? Would you have to basically turn winter the llama into a blood donor? Using this llama that we vaccinated, we identified the gene that encodes for the exact antibody that we're interested in. And now that we have that genetic information, we can put it into cells in a dish growing in a laboratory, uh, and we can scale that up for bulk production. And have you actually tried this against the new coronavirus? Because you've tested it against the original SARS. You've tested it against this Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus. Have you actually challenged an individual or an animal with the new coronavirus and then shown that these mini antibodies work? So we haven't tested this in an animal yet, but we have done it uh, using just cells in a dish in the laboratory. Uh, and we did see protection against the COVID-19 coronavirus. Uh, so we're optimistic that when we move into hamsters, which is going to be our first test organism, that we'll see the same effect. And do you know how it's working? Yes. So the, the way that it works is it binds to the portion of the coronavirus that attaches to our host cells. So basically, the antibody is preventing that attachment from taking place, and therefore the virus can't infect. Now, given that the llama can make antibodies, is it not just easier, since we're going to have to put these antibodies into people to treat them, is it not just easier to do to people what you did to the llama and make people make normal human antibodies? Yeah, that's the vaccination would be ideal. But as sort of a, a stopgap until we have an approved vaccine, this will be useful for people who have already come into contact with the virus because you have to be administered a vaccine probably about two months before you would ever come into contact with the coronavirus. So a vaccine won't be useful for people who are already infected. And there's also some interest in uh, administering it prophylactically to the elderly who aren't always able to raise an effective immune response upon vaccination. And you think you could make enough of these? Yeah, we've scaled up production and we get very good yields. So we're optimistic about being able to produce sufficient quantities. Daniel Rapp, and that study was published in the journal Cell. It's amazing stuff, isn't it? Now, in order for us to be talking to you today and for you to be listening, an incredibly complex cascade of events took place during our mother's pregnancies. There's still an enormous amount that needs to be understood about human development, but it might get a helping hand this week with news out of a model that can give scientists much clearer insights into how you and me and Katie came into being. Alfonso Martinez-Arias from Cambridge University is one of the scientists behind a new model, which they say will allow scientists to probe the processes of early human embryonic development in the lab for the first time. They're modelling an early developmental stage called gastrulation, where different parts of the body start to form. It's poorly understood in humans owing to restrictions around growing embryos for research beyond 14 days. So what exactly is this model and what can we learn from it? Alfonso, what exactly have you achieved here? What we have achieved on the plate is a simulation of the process of gastrulation. Now, this is a mouthful of a word for many of the people listening, but as a biologist said, the most important moment in your life is not when you're born or when you get married or when you die, is when you undergo this process of gastrulation. So before explaining what it is that we have achieved, it's important to get a perspective of what this process is. During this magical event, the ball of cells that results from the fertilization of the egg transforms itself in a very origamic sort of way into the outline of an organism with the seat of the head at one end and behind it the heart and the gut and the muscles and the bones. Uh, this is a process that in, it happens deeply inside the uterus, had never been observed in the lab, in, in reality, and we have managed to reproduce it in the lab. 
how have you done this then if it's so difficult to do? One of the things that have opened up the way for these kinds of experiments is embryonic stem cells. Embryonic stem cells are cells derived from uh, early embryos that can be kept in the lab indefinitely and can be uh, enticed to differentiate into the different cell types of an organism. But they had never been put together or attempted to build the rudiments of an organism with that. We found the way to uh, entice them, if you wish, to come together in a way that they are able to undergo this process in the dish and outline the uh, organism, the, the, the little human being. I should point out that at these early stages, the human embryo is about one or two millimeters long, which is the, the kind of object that we obtain with the, with the cells. Wow. Why hasn't this been done before, though? Can you tell us a bit about the, the ethics around this kind of work? Yeah, it is important to, to highlight that we know a lot about this process in many, many animals and, and even in mice, but it had never been achieved in humans. And the reason for that, it, it has to do with, the, with something that is called the 14-day rule, which was uh, set up uh, during the studies of in vitro fertilization, when people realized that you could grow early embryos in a dish, but then that raised the point of how long could you get these embryos grown in the dish. Uh, a committee was set up, uh, run by Mary Warnock, and in that committee they decided that the point at which you could never grow embryos longer in the dish was day 14. Why? Because that's the day at which this magic process of gastrulation happens. In any case, this process takes uh, place very deeply inside the uterus and therefore had never been observed before. These days there is people growing embryos in the lab, but they are with technical difficulties to get them beyond this day 14. We have managed uh, to find a way which does not exactly reproduce the, the, the early events of the embryo, but it produces the process of gastrulation and it yields this early the structure of this early embryo. I see. So would it be fair to say that this model wouldn't result in an embryo if you were to the continue reason, the model? That is indeed very, very important. Uh, there are two features of our system that uh, are present in embryos and that uh, we have managed to avoid in the way we treat the cells. One is the appearance of a brain. That doesn't mean that the system does not have a nervous system. There is more to the nervous system than the brain and we have the seeds for the neurons in our system. And it also lacks a, a set of cells that allow the embryo to attach to the mother. Therefore, the system that we have would never develop into a full embryo at the moment. I see. Because it cannot interact with the mother. And just briefly, what are you hoping to learn or are you hoping the field will learn with this model? There are three things. One, as a scientist, this is the first time that we can actually see how gastrulation happens in a human embryo and compare it to two other animals. And this is one of the things that we do in the paper. Second, most importantly, uh, there are many uh, birth defects that probably have the roots in the process of gastrulation and that had never been able to study. With the advent of these iPS cells, induced pluripotent cell cells, you can make now embryonic stem cells from patients with these diseases and we could try to model them or to copy them and ask how do they produce, uh, how do they go through this process of gastrulation. Finally, I think it would be a very good system for drug screening of uh, substances that uh, people might want to test uh, for pregnancies and, and how would they affect the earlier stages of human development. Alfonso Martinez Arias, thank you very much. Critics everywhere are raving about the Naked Genetics podcast. I wish I could show you it. It's beautiful. This is really exciting. No, that is actually quite disgusting. Potentially a global phenomenon. I'm out of here and I'll be watching YouTube instead. Come on and join me, Phil Sansom, every month as we shrink down to microscopic size and understand the quirky code inside all living things. From the science behind the headlines. SARS and COVID have hijacked this essential protein and in the process wreaked havoc in the patient. To the obscure and unexpectedly fascinating. It's not overly pleasant to send a diver swimming through a massive plume of whale shark poo, but you've got to make these sacrifices for science. Subscribe to Naked Genetics on your podcast app today. Coming up, we're taking the drill of curiosity to dig down inside our planet, so stay tuned. Now, in 2015, 
the theoretical physicist Albert Einstein's work arguably faced one of its toughest tests ever when researchers went looking for the gravitational waves predicted by his theory of general relativity. Einstein passed with flying colours, and this week he's got another feather in his cap because scientists have proved right another prediction that even under extremes of gravity, like that around massive stars, general relativity works correctly and explains how gravity behaves. To fill us in, here's physicist Ben McAllister. In the late 16th century, Italian physicist Galileo climbed the Leaning Tower of Pisa and dropped two rocks of different masses. He measured how long it took them to hit the ground. To most people's surprise, despite having different masses, the rocks hit the ground at the same time. This was one of the earliest observations of what we now call the equivalence principle. The principle roughly states that things accelerate the same way in a gravitational field regardless of their mass or what they're made of. So, whether we're talking about a falling rock or a falling meteor, they should both obey the rules identically. But when this pronouncement was made, we didn't know about any of the more exotic things out there in the universe, like black holes or neutron stars. These are cases of extreme gravity, with gravitational fields so strong and complex that they end up interacting with themselves in ways Galileo could never have even imagined when he dropped his stones. Over the centuries, we eventually developed a theory of gravity which did allow us to comprehend those gravitationally complex extreme cases. Einstein's theory of general relativity. This new theory of gravity suggested a possible extension of the equivalence principle, which we call the strong equivalence principle, and which states that even gravitational gargantuas like neutron stars should follow the rules and behave like Galileo's rocks. Nevertheless, this stronger version of the principle was initially just a theory and had yet to be tested. Fortunately, the universe gives us nice laboratories to do these tests. And recently, a group of astronomers from around the world have used a radio telescope to perform the cosmic equivalent of Galileo's PISA experiment. They measured the motion of a fast-spinning neutron star known as a pulsar, This was being orbited by a white dwarf star, much like the moon orbits the Earth. The pulsar and its white dwarf companion were in turn both orbiting another star, much like the way the Earth and the moon both orbit the sun. By monitoring the light signals coming to Earth from the spinning pulsar, and looking at how the arrival times of those light signals differed when the pulsar moved away from and towards Earth, the scientists were able to make extremely precise measurements of the motion of the stars. And what they found was that the equivalence principle seems to hold even for gravitationally complex bodies like neutron stars. The pulsar and the white dwarf star, despite having different masses and different compositions, appeared to both be accelerating towards the star they were orbiting at the same rate, much like Galileo's different rocks falling towards the Earth. So, for now, it looks like our old pal Einstein was right yet again. Fortunately, we didn't need to go lobbing rocks off of tall buildings to get to the bottom of it this time. Ben McAllister and the work that Ben was describing by Guillaume Voisin and his colleagues is just out in the journal Astronomy and Astrophysics. Now, the typical image of an archaeologist is somebody with a trowel down a hole, digging away, unearthing the past. Well, it turns out that's a bit old hat these days because all you need is a quad bike with a fancy electronic gizmo on the back. The device, the gizmo Katie's talking about, is a ground-penetrating radar, and using one, scientists have mapped out the ruins of a Roman town in Italy, but without ever having to pick up a trowel once. The town is Falleri Novi. It's about 50 kilometres north of Rome, and was founded over 2,200 years ago. All that's on site these days is the old town wall and a few sheep, and it's a protected monument, so you can't dig there. Adam Murphy has been speaking to archaeologist Martin Millett and he's been explaining how the radar on the quad bike produced crystal clear images of the entire town beneath the ground. We've known about the site for a long time. It has had work done on it in the past, since the 18th century, actually. We chose it for our work because of two things. One, it's a greenfield site. In other words, the Roman town has gone and it's just fields now, so it's easy to access for sort of experimental work. It's a historically important city anyway. 
And the other point that makes it important from the point of view of this study is that about 25 years ago, we did a magnetic survey of the whole site. By having that data set, as well as the one that we've collected now, we've got two geophysical data sets that can be directly compared. And that's very helpful for understanding how the techniques work and how they're complementary. Can you tell us how you went about looking for the things there that are on the ground? Well, it's relatively straightforward. We're using ground penetrating radar. So you have a radar antenna that sends a pulse of radio signal into the ground. And as the pulse of energy passes through changes in density in the ground, so if it hits a wall or something, you get an echo back. And the echo time is proportional to the depth. So at a basic level, you could just drag a single antenna across the site. What we're doing here and what's new about this is doing it over a very large area and at very high intensity. So the solution for that is rather than having a single radar antenna, you have an array of them and our Belgian colleagues have put together 16 antennae that are dragged behind a quad bike. What that means is that you know the setup of the array and with satellite surveying, you can tell exactly where each sensor is at any one time. And that means that you can collect a mass of sort of radar data by gently dragging the array across the field. How much data do you end up with at the other end of something like this? Well, from this site, it's somewhere around 28 billion data points. And then how do you go about beginning to analyse 28 (laughs) billion data points? Well, um, again, at the simple level, each single pulse gives you a series of reflections back. And it's a question of crunching the data to pull out the things that are coming back at the same sort of nanosecond in time so that you can differentiate what's going on at different depths beneath the surface. And then effectively you use a Um, an image processing software to turn that into a series of grayscale images that give you what's going on at individual depths. And there are various ways you can then play with that in three-dimensional visualisation. What kind of things have you found under the ground here? We get the whole city plan. That's what we've been after. That's, of course, made up of different buildings, different uh, streets and structures. The beauty of this is that if you look at the images, they're very crisp because we're collecting data at six and a quarter centimetre intervals. So you can see very small uh, features, 20 to 30 centimetres across under two metres of soil. And you said you you could see like the individual buildings. What, What kind of buildings were they there that you've seen? There are an array of big houses. And the more spectacular buildings we've got, we've got very good evidence on the theatre that was previously known, but we can see its structure very clearly now. We've got a completely hitherto unknown temple and big bath building and a market building and this very curious big monument up near the North Gate, which is a large sort of courtyard structure with colonnades on three sides opened on the street that um, we don't know what it is. (laughs) There's quite a lot of that sort of detective work to do on the, the images we've got at the moment. Just amazing what's underneath your feet, isn't it? And just there to be revealed by modern day technology. Martin Millett from the University of Cambridge. And details of that study, if you'd like to read a bit more about it, are in the journal Antiquity. And talking of reading a bit more about it, there are transcripts as well as the references to all of the studies that underpin the interviews we've done on the programme on our website at nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. 
This week, from Jules Verne to jewellery, we're drilling down to find out more about the Earth beneath our feet. You've probably seen diagrams showing our planet cut in half with the thin crust on the outside, the mantle underneath that, and then the core at a sizzling 6,000 or so degrees C and 6,000 kilometres down sitting at the centre. But how do we know this and what are the different regions made of? We'll stick with us to find out as we journey to the centre of the Earth. Before we start tunnelling into the planet, though, let's first consider what's directly beneath our feet. Across most of the Earth's surface, that's soil, which sustains the plants and trees we see growing everywhere. But invisible to the naked eye and buried within the soil itself is an enormous community of microbes, without which most things couldn't grow. Jake Malone is from the John Innes Centre in Norwich. Jake, what exactly is soil made out of, first of all? I guess it's a mix of two main things. One of these is minerals, so things like clay or sand or stones. Um, But the other very important part is decomposed organic matter. So it's mainly um, plant matter which has decayed. But what we're really interested in, or, or at least my lab is really interested in, within the soil are all of the different microorganisms that live there. So as well as tiny insects and worms and things like that, you'll also find thousands of different species of fungus and bacteria. They're all interacting and fighting with one another and communicating with one another. And that's what gives soil its really special characteristics. The soil has a microbiome just like we have a microbiome then. Uh, Yeah, that's true. Um, There are thousands of different species of fungi and bacteria and other microorganisms which live in the soil. And they're all competing with one another and communicating and interacting with other things in the soil like plants. So what you'll find is uh, soil pathogens, for example, fungi and bacteria that will try and kill plants. Uh, But you'll also find bacteria that will fight them off or fungi that will fight them off and try and protect the plants in order to to benefit from having it in the soil. And you find some interesting types of bugs like symbiotic bacteria such as rhizobia or arbuscular mycorrhizal fungi, which are a type of fungus which provides nutrients to plants in exchange uh, for carbon which comes from the plant roots. So it's a trade-off then? There's a a relationship going on here? Absolutely, yeah. Um, What you find is that the Well, most plants will secrete a large amount of their fixed carbon, so the carbon that they take from the air is carbon dioxide. They secrete that into the surrounding soil. And the reason they do this is to attract these microorganisms which will benefit them. In the case of the um, the symbiotic microorganisms like rhizobium or um, these mycorrhizal fungi, they will be providing something that the plant can't get easily, such as fixed nitrogen or Um, fixed phosphorus, things like that. And in return, they will be taking sugars directly from the plant roots. The plants, I should say, don't normally want to do this. They'll do it if it's advantageous to them. But if you have a farming system and you supply, for example, a lot of nitrogen or a lot of phosphorus to the soil artificially, then the plants will actually suppress the relationship with the the microorganism. And they'll they'll say, OK, I don't want to do this. It's, It's costly for me. And I don't need to because I have this fertiliser. So the plants are quite clever in that respect. In general, how are our soils doing? Do do we have enough soil to grow the amount of food that we need? That's a good question. Um, We don't have enough soil in Britain. About I should say about 70% of the soil in Britain is currently um, used for agriculture. Wow, 70%? That sounds like quite a lot. It is a lot, yeah. Um, it's apart from some areas of upland and some forests, and about ten percent of uh, built-over land. Most of England certainly is is given over to farmland. Uh, that doesn't provide enough food to feed everyone. And I should also say that certainly in recent years, the quality of soil has been degrading. Uh, the reason for this is intensification of agriculture, and this has led to things like the compaction of soil from driving large tractors and other vehicles over it, a soil erosion from removing hedgerows and other landscape features that prevent erosion. 
and also the contamination of soil, um, for example, with microplastics or with chemicals. Um, the addition of things like um, phosphorus and nitrogen to the soil has also degraded it to some extent. What can be done about that? Because it doesn't really sound that sustainable. Is that a fair thing to say? I think it is a fair thing to say, although there is a lot we can do. I think one of the absolute best things we could do is more sustainable land management going forward. So, for example, if you plant trees around the sides of fields, it's been shown to reduce erosion and also to increase um, crop yields within those fields. And a lot of what we're doing, a lot of what we're trying to study um, at John Innes and elsewhere is how we can intelligently manage and sustainably manage um, farming practices going forward. And I tend to be an optimist. I, I think we're learning a huge amount and I think people are a lot more aware these days of the importance of soil and the importance of keeping um, and managing soil sustainably. So on that then, how do scientists like yourself study the microbes in the soil in order for us to make if we're talking about say crops as much food as sustainably as possible where do the microbes come in well we're studying microbes in in lots of different contexts so for example we might look at what microbes are present in a field or we might look at what do those microbes do um we can look at what proportion of um for example, what proportion of a particular type of microbe is present and what does it do? What molecules does it produce? Is it good for a plant or bad for a plant? And we can also study, and we are studying, um, how do different plants interact with these microbes? So what molecules are they putting out to attract the bugs? Um, which bugs do they attract? How important is this? And how does that interact with different soil types to lead to sustained plant growth? Jake Malone, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you ever so much. Now, though, it's time to swap soil for rock and lots of it. Despite the fact that the Earth is 4,500 million years old and we have lived on it as humans for thousands to potentially millions of years, it's only in the last century or so that we've had any more than a vague notion, though, of what actually lies inside our planet. We now know that there are several layers inside the planet, the outermost one being a relatively thin crust. Below that is the mantle. This is a rocky layer that extends 3,000 kilometres down to the outer edge of the core. Now, the reason we know this is thanks to earthquakes. These send waves of vibrations through the planet. Some of these waves shake from side to side, while others compress the thing in front of them. And critically, these waves change their paths in predictable ways when they meet the boundaries between different layers. The first person to realise that this could reveal what lies inside the Earth was Croatian mathematician Andrea Mohorovicic. At the University of Zagreb, where he worked, they have many of his original notebooks and records in which he proved where the crust must stop and where the mantle begins. And geologist Marianne Herak showed me around. We are in the Mohorovicic Memorial Rooms in the building of the Department of Geophysics of Faculty of Science in Zagreb. In this room we tried to collect everything we have from Professor Mohorovicic, who is one of the founding fathers of seismology. Universally, Mohorovicic is famous for his discovery of the crust-mantle boundary, which is today known as the Mohorovicic discontinuity. When Mohorovicic published the discovery in, in a paper in 1910, this proved that the Earth is best described as being made of shells. So the uppermost of those shells is today known as the crust, and he conclusively proved that the crust exists, that it has the depths of about 50 kilometers, the average is about 33 kilometers, and that the waves and the properties of the Earth abruptly change at, at such uh, discontinuities. Why was that so groundbreaking at the time? Because by proving that the properties of the Earth do not change continuously, he added important piece of information into the common knowledge. He established ways to see 
into the depths of the Earth by observations at the surface of the Earth. And this was one of the goals of seismology, as he postulated it, to continue where the geologist stops. And he realized that by modern instruments, a scientist is given a kind of binoculars with which he can look into the greatest depth of the Earth. How did he do it? He was a bit lucky that soon after he installed the, the modern seismographs in Zagreb, an earthquake occurred not far from here in the valley of the Kupa River. Uh, he recorded it beautifully and was able to collect the seismograms from all over Europe. Other people were also doing similar measurements in different parts of Europe, and so he was able to bring the same records of the same event together. Yes, seismology was in its infancy. The seismographs had just gotten good enough to record faithfully the movements of the Earth during earthquakes. Of course, this was more complicated than today. There were no emails or <laughs> scanners or anything like that. He had to obtain copies, or in some instances, the originals were sent to him by post. Because you've got an example of one on the table here in front yeah. of us, and these are long pieces of paper or, or card which have a scratched sort of signature which the stylus of the mm -hmm. seismograph has, has scratched into the surface as it's moved in response to the vibration. So he would have been receiving things like that from across Europe. Yes, things like that, or photographic copies. So he analysed those records and realised that some things were unexpected. There were four waves observed instead of two. Just explain these different waves for a second. So when you have an earthquake, mm -hmm. what are the two sorts of waves that should be coming out of that earthquake then? So when the earthquake occurs, two waves radiate from the source. One of those are the longitudinal waves. In those waves, which are like sound waves, the particles oscillate in the direction of the wave spreading. The other type is the transversal wave, which has particles oscillating perpendicularly to the direction of the spreading of the wave. So if I had a slinky spring and I pulled some of the coils towards me and let them go and they would ping away, the wave would travel along that spring in the direction the this spring was the stretched out. Wave. Whereas if I sort of wiggled the spring from side to side, that would be like a transverse mm -hmm. wave. Those, those would be the two sorts of waves that yes. you should get from an earthquake. Yes. And you're saying he actually saw not just those two, but, but when he made his recordings, it was clear there were four waves. In some stations, yes. This was funny. In some stations, you see what you expect, two waves. Then you see four, and then again you see two. Were they the, the same waves, except they were delayed or something? Were they arriving at different times? He knew that only two waves can exist, so he had to come to the conclusion that at this interval of distances, those waves were not four different waves, but two pairs of waves, of which one came directly from the source, and the other pair were initially going down, and then they were refracted, the unknown depths, and then refracted back to the Earth after some, some distance travelled. So one of the waves goes straight through the Earth, the other goes deep into the Earth and hits this boundary mm -hmm. that we now know exists between the upper part of the Earth, the crust, mm -hmm. and, the, and the mantle, which is deeper. And that bends the waves back up towards the surface, and that was his breakthrough. Yes, in a nutshell. That must have been an incredible amount of maths for him to work that out. Yes, uh, it, it was really uh, difficult for him to understand, but once he understood it, then all he had to do was find the model you know, to invert the observations on the surface for the properties of the Earth, the only thing he had to do is to find the model, the velocities and the depth of the, of the discontinuity and to match the observations. And he did it, and we called such problems inverse problems. So like your doctor when you go to, to have a CT or x-rays, by observing things on the surface of the body, he concluded about the composition of the interior of the body. Uh, the math... Of course, without computers, without anything, and I must say, without any help, he, he did it alone. And we have uh, stacks of papers with his, in, in his handwriting. He worked with logarithms to seven decimals, uh, and he made it so difficult for himself because he wanted to have it very realistic. So some, some of the assumptions we even do not use today, he used them. This was a breakthrough. 
It was pretty stupendous to see those notebooks with these excruciatingly detailed calculations, literally seven decimal places, all of them, page after page, to make those observations. Very privileged that I actually got to see them. And I'm very grateful to Marianne Herrick from the University of Zagreb, who showed them to me. Since the time of Mohorovic, we've learned a lot about the Earth's interior. And with us is geologist Hugh Davies from Cardiff University, where he's setting up a project to learn a lot more about the mantle. Hello, Hugh. Hello, Kitty. Now, we're all sitting, in essence, on the crust, aren't we? What exactly is the crust made of? Well, the crust is a silicate rock, basically rock, um, and yeah, primarily um, has a slightly higher level of silica than um, maybe some other rocks. And if it were possible, I don't think it is at the moment, to drill down into the mantle from the crust, what would that look like? What's the environment like? So the mineralogy would change. So the composition would change. Um, so basically, the crust really results from melts produced from the mantle. So elements that like to be in melts have ended up being in our crust. So one thing we would see is clearly slightly different minerals as we got into the mantle. And that's what leads to this different seismic velocity we just heard about but also we would be getting hotter. And that's part of the reason why it's actually very difficult to drill into the mantle because it becomes a very hot environment and basically our drills can't um, sustain that very well. How far down has anybody got? So there's two aspects of that. So the deepest hole is in the Kola Peninsula in Russia and they've drilled 12 kilometres. So that's in continental crust. But there, the reason they've been able to drill so deep is because it's a very, very cold part of the earth. And actually, that's in the continental crust. And actually, to get to the mantle, they probably have to drill another 30-odd kilometres. So where we've drilled closer to the mantle is in the oceanic crust, which is a lot thinner. But there, we've only managed to drill about um, a kilometre or two. And we would need to drill another four or five kilometres um, to, um, to reach the mantle. So the only places where we've seen the mantle is where tectonic processes has brought it up to the surface, or we've had little fragments brought up by volcanic eruptions. I'm glad you mentioned that because where do tectonic plates come into this? How how do we end up with these really dramatic geological events like earthquakes and, and volcanoes? Well, it's it's kind of strange um, in a sense. The, the surface of the earth, um, as we discovered sort of, well, we'd sort of got to the argument sort of in the 50s, but really was one in the 60s, of that the surface of the, of the Earth is broken up into these tectonic plates. So basically, uh, large regions don't suffer much deformation, and then the movement is all occurring at the boundary of these plates, and that can occur in three different ways. They can be moving side by side, like in the San Andreas Fault. That one could, they can be approaching each other, converging, like in Japan, where one plate goes under another, um, or they can be diverging, separating, like in the mid-ocean ridges um, deep in the ocean where we get magmas. Can you break that down a little bit in terms of what leads to quakes and what leads to volcanoes? So when the plates rub against each other, um, so the the case of side by side, so the plates are basically rubbing against each other, and, and the earthquake is because you get a stick-slip mechanism. So the plates kind of stick, but the forces of the mantle are, are moving the, um, the plates, and then at some point, um, they can't res- the fault can't sustain the force any longer, and then it jumps, and that would be the earthquake event. And basically, the movement will have caught up with the movement in the mantle, and then it repeats itself. But the biggest earthquakes of all, are in the convergence zone. So these are where the plate goes down beneath each other, for example, in Japan, in Indonesia, and beneath South America, for example. And it's the same idea. Basically, again, the plate is um, sticks, and then it moves suddenly to catch up with the forces that are always wanting to, to pull it down. So in a volcano, we get an eruption and magma. What's going on there compared to what we were just talking about? Most magmatism occurs beneath the ocean floor where the plates are moving apart. Um, So we get hot rock coming close to the surface. And interestingly, because the pressure, as it gets closer and closer to the surface, 
the pressure on it gets less. And interestingly, the melting point of rocks gets less um, as the pressure decreases. So at some point, the hot, the rocks are hot enough, but not under enough pressure. So they melt and they produce, in fact, the oceanic crust. But those typically are beneath the ocean floor, so we don't see them very much. But the case where the plates are colliding against each other, we also get volcanoes. And these are the dramatic volcanoes like in Japan, in the Andes, um, in Indonesia. And in this case, what we've got is the ocean floor, um, which is as a converging plate is jumping stick slip as earthquakes gets down into the interior and the water of the ocean has penetrated into the crust. In fact, when it formed the lavas, when it was spreading way back at the ridge. So all this gets carried down and the water gets carried out inside the earth and then it, it gets released and water also reduces the melting point of the mantle and that's how we get melts in that part of the world and that's why actually those magmas tend to be the most explosive because that's actually that water forming bubbles as the pressure is released exactly the same idea as we get with a coke bottle or something when we open the top and loosen the pressure and then the third scenario is where we get just purely hot rock coming up towards the surface just the heat sort of melts the rock and that's a place like Hawaii is is an example of, of that region. I'm pretty sure you said magmatism and magmatism, magnetism. <laughs> I guess you've got to be a bit careful between those two. Yes. yes. So magmatism, <laughs> coming from magma, magnetism, of course, to do with magnets, yes. How much do we understand about the mantle then? Where does the knowledge gap exist? Because you're about to start a pretty big project on the mantle, is that right? Yes. So we understand a fair bit, given that it actually isn't something we can really get our hands on very easily. And a lot of it comes from seismology. And we just heard um, earlier about how seismology helped to tell us the difference between the crust and the mantle. Well, today we kind of know the onion peel structure of the earth very well, all the way down to the core mantle boundary. But we can take that further and we can now do um, cat scanning type um, ideas using the seismic waves. So we have some sense of the 3D structure. Um, the resolution is, is relatively poor. We have some sense of the downgoing move, movement, um, where the plates go down. Um, but the bit that's less well understood is clearly if thing goes down, something has to come back up. And it's the upflow that we don't under, understand as well. And that's going to be the primary focus of our project. So how do you go about trying to look at that then? The centre of the project, we can say, will be a model of the dynamics so the inside of the mantle creeps sort of at the same rate as our fingernails grow so you know we don't see them when we look at them but we know they've grown after a few months so that's the same thing for the mantle we can model it on a geological time scale like a flowing liquid so we'll have this model and we'll apply the plate motion histories that we know to the surface and then it'll make predictions for example of how the structure would be at present day which we can compare with the seismology um, we'll also have looking at chemistry um, of the magmas that come out and they'll give us different constraints. And we will also look at magnetic signatures of um, rocks at the Earth's surface, which tell us something about the old magnetic field, which tell us about the core, which the mantle sort of puts a constraint on. So we'll bring this model of how the Earth's moved and we'll then we'll be constraining it with all these other different techniques and hopefully understanding how the Earth's um, flown. Well, we might have to get you back on, Hugh, to uh, tell us what you've learned. But for now, thank you ever so much, Hugh Davies. We've cracked open the crust, we have mused over the mantle, but now let's get to the core of the matter. What is actually at the centre of the Earth? Claire Nichols is a paleomagnetist, formerly at Cambridge University. She now works at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology over in the States. Claire, first of all, we've got tantalisingly close to the core. We just heard from Hugh that the mantle is the boundary between us and it. So what actually is in the core of the Earth? Yeah, it's a great question. We only indirectly know what's in the core, um, but there are lots of lines of evidence that tell us that it's predominantly made of the element iron. How do you know that? 
two main ways. One, we know from the mass of rocks that we see at the surface of the Earth that what's in the interior must be a lot denser. And the other reason we know is because we know it must be conductive because it's generating Earth's magnetic field. When you say the density gives this away, is that because we, we have some inkling as to how much the Earth weighs, in inverted commas? And so given that if you know what proportion of it's the lighter rocks on the outside, the heavier stuff sinks, we're inferring there must be really heavy stuff in the middle. Right, exactly. Now, in terms of, of the heat that's down there, I mentioned at the top of the programme that it's about 6,000-odd degrees, isn't it? But where's all that heat mm-hmm. coming from? Because the Earth's four and a half thousand million years old it's been around a long time you'd have thought it would have cooled down by now so why is the earth still so hot why is the core still so hot all of that heat as you say it does come actually from the very very beginning of the planet's formation billions of years ago and the reason it's still so hot in the middle is because there's just so much crust and mantle that all that heat has to be extracted through so it's like the core is wearing the thickest winter coat of all time so it is cooling (laughs) down but slowly and as it cools down, does it does it harden? Because right at the very centre, it, it is solid, isn't it? And it's the outer part of the core that's the liquid bit. Yeah, we think that it started to solidify right in the middle, and the inner solid core is now growing through time. And do we have any insights into how that is spawning the magnetic field that we have? What we think is happening today is that the solid inner core is ejecting other elements, so light elements like things like oxygen and sulphur, into that liquid part of the core, and that's driving really, really vigorous convection. I'm just picturing this, therefore I've got, right in the centre of the Earth, I've got the the, the inner core, and that's the bit you're saying has gone hard, that's solid. Mm -hmm. There's stuff coming out of that into the liquid bit that surrounds it, and that's spinning, and that spinning is Mm -hmm. in some way creating this magnetic effect yeah exactly so you can kind of think of this liquid part as like a lava lamp things are mixing around and because it's made of a conductive material so something that electricity can travel through by moving that charge around that's actually generating the magnetic field obviously you're trying to work out how something that is six thousand kilometers below our feet is working how do you do that What we look at is um, rocks that form on the surface of Earth very conveniently when they cool, so like lava flows coming out of volcanoes, they trap a record of the magnetic field at the surface. So we can look at what the magnetic field is doing today and what it's doing back in time, and that tells us about what the core is doing. Ah, right. So when the stuff spawns as as liquid magma from within the Earth... Before it goes hard, it it can move in any direction, but because it's got stuff in it that's susceptible to the Earth's magnetic field, it will sort of line up with whatever the field is doing at that time. Yeah, so there's just there's little magnetic blobs in those lava flows, and as those little blobs cool down, um, they will align with the direction of the magnetic field. But how do you know what way they're pointing? So if I hand you a pebble, how do you know that <laughs> the, the pebble was orientated in a certain direction relative to the Earth's magnetic field then? Well, a pebble is tricky because we don't know how it was oriented on the surface. But if we go to, say, a cliff face or something that we know its original orientation, then we can take oriented samples of that to a laboratory and then we can measure the direction of the magnetic field um, in that sample very, very accurately. And then we can use that um, to tell us about the ancient magnetic field. And because you can date the rocks, you know how old it was and therefore what the magnetism was doing in rocks that age. So you can mind Yeah, the exactly. Mm-hmm. And if you do that then, what do we learn about the, the Earth's magnetic field through time? We have learned that we've had a magnetic field for billions of years um, and also that the magnetic field wobbles around so it's not perfectly north and south all of the time and sometimes it even flips so it's actually very dynamic. When did it last flip round? Um, so it last flipped hundreds of thousands of years ago so it doesn't happen very often. Do we have any insights into the consequences of that? Because obviously hundreds of thousands of years, there were our human ancestors walking around on the Earth at that time. So presumably when this happens, it's not terribly catastrophic for life as we know it. No, so we don't think it is. So actually there's no evidence going back in time of humans or fossils um, being made extinct by a reversal. But one thing it will affect is technology. So things like your mobile phone will not work very well during a reversal. Why? 
Um, it's because our magnetic field is shielding our planet from cosmic radiation, so basically radiation coming in from the sun. And if we are, if our magnetic field is flipping, it's much weaker and that means we get a lot more radiation and that will interfere with satellites um, and all sorts of things for technology. And do you know how quickly these flips happen? Can we see evidence of the field collapsing and then re-establishing in the new direction? And does that happen really quickly or does it happen geologically really quickly, meaning over thousands of years? Yeah, exactly. So it happens geologically quickly. A reversal would take well beyond our lifetimes, um, but in the rocks it looks instantaneous. In terms of actually what's causing this flip, can we work this one out? Or do we just have to say, well, it's something to do with some convulsion in the core at some point with the movement of things and it, and it causes this to happen? Do we have an idea as to why this does what it does? It's still a bit of a mystery. We know it happens on a fairly regular time scale, but we're not entirely sure what's driving it. Um, but it's basically, it's indicating to us that the flows within the core are quite complicated and something must trigger a change in their behaviour. And as more of the core hardens, which is happening with time, does that mean that the frequency of this happening may change too? It might do. Yeah, that's something um, that we'll have to look for, for evidence of as and when it happens. Let's hope it's not too soon. I like my mobile. Yeah. It's bad enough, the <laughs> signal where I live already. And one last question, Claire, because obviously Mars is quite a similar size to the Earth, but Mars mm. doesn't seem to have a magnetic field anymore. Many people blame the absence of a magnetic field for the fact that it is now a prune of a planet with almost no water left, where previously it was a water world. So why has Mars lost its magnetic field and we haven't? Partly, it's probably because Mars is much smaller than the Earth, um, so it cools down much, much quicker. But we also think that something a bit weird happened that made the Martian magnetic field switch off so early. So that's something else that scientists are actively looking at today. So lots of questions to try and get to the bottom of. Claire, thanks ever so much for joining us. That was Claire Nichols. Thanks also to Hugh Davies and our other contributors this week, Marianne Herrick and Jake Malone. And now to finish, it's time for our question of the week. And Adam Murphy has been trying to get a hole in one with this question from Darren. Golf balls are dimpled to disrupt the air around the ball. As far as I can gather, this reduces the drag and allows them to fly further than they would if they were perfectly round. Why do we not see dimpled cars, aircraft and trains? If this effect is so effective for golf balls, why not use it on Formula One cars, for instance? And why wouldn't you use it on a Formula One car? You can drive a golf ball and a car, after all. So, what makes one good for dimpling and the other not? Well, Sam Grimshaw from the Whittle Jet Engine Lab here at the University of Cambridge is here to take a swing at the answer. To answer this question, I need you to picture a stream of air flowing past an object. We call the messy flow behind the object a wake, just like you see behind a boat. The drag on the object is related to the size and shape of this wake. Now, if we zoom in close to the object's surface, we see that friction slows the air down. This region of slower flow is called a boundary layer. If the overall flow is relatively slow and the object small, then the viscous nature of the air makes the boundary layer flow smooth. This flow struggles to follow a curved surface. So for a sphere, the air leaves the surface about halfway around, producing a large wake and lots of drag. Imagine dragging your hand through some water. If you go with your palm first, you're gonna make a big wake and you're gonna feel a lot of pushback. But if you use the thinner edge of your hand, you're going to chop through the water a lot easier and make a much smaller wake. So because this ball isn't a sleek streamlined shape, the air can't follow it all the way around. It makes a big giant wake behind it and pulls it back. Now, if only there was some way to mess that big wake up. For fast flow past the large object, the boundary layer becomes churned up or turbulent. This type of flow follows the surface of the sphere better. So the flow travels further around, giving a smaller wake and reduced drag. A golf ball, which is small but fast, is delicately balanced between these two behaviours. A smooth golf ball tends to have the smooth type of boundary layer, resulting in a large wake and high drag. However, dimples disturb the flow just enough to make the boundary layer turbulent, reducing the drag and allowing you to hit the ball further. For a car or train, which are quite fast and very large compared to a golf ball, the boundary layer is turbulent anyway so dimples have little effect. That's a shame. I'd like to see a dimpled Formula One car, personally. 
Well, thanks to Sam for that answer, and thanks also to Evan A.U. and Janice on the forum who came to similar conclusions. Join us next time when we answer this question from a different Sam. If identical twin brothers marry identical twin sisters and each couple have a child, will those two children be like twins? So what do you think? You can get in touch, nakedscientist.com slash question. You can email chris at thenakedscientist.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can tweet at Naked Scientists or join in the debate on the forum, nakedscientist.com slash forum. And there we must leave it for this week. Thanks to Katie who put the programme together and do be sure to tune in at the same time next week, grabbing your thinking cap and pulling up your bar stool because we're indulging in another Naked Scientist science pub quiz. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the Institute of Continuing Education at the University of Cambridge. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks to Rolls-Royce who support the programme and to you at home for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.